had it muted. This morning, we are going to conclude our brief series on gender. Um, we've been walking through this subject the last couple of weeks. Um, we were walking through 1 Corinthians 11, felt the need to stop as we just addressed in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, the subject of gender in the church. And I thought in light of all the discussion regarding gender issues in our own culture today, it would be important for us to pause and talk about the larger biblical portrait of gender according to God's design. So this will be the third and the final sermon in our brief gender series. Um, we began by looking at the revelation of God's good design of gender in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, a few weeks ago, where we saw that God created us equally and distinctively as male and female in his own image. Last week, we double-clicked on that creation account in Genesis 1 and looked at the reaffirmation of gender in Genesis chapter 2. We saw the essence and exercise of manhood and womanhood before the fall and then explored some of the ways in which manhood and womanhood has eroded after the fall, specifically as it relates to many of the discussions surrounding the essence and exercise of gender in our culture today. So this morning, I want to conclude by looking at the restoration of God's good design of gender in Christ. How does the coming of Jesus Christ into the world shape our understanding of gender, specifically as it is lived out in the church and in the home? Now, I think it's important to point out on the front end that the work of Jesus Christ is paradigmatic for our understanding of gender. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Now, does that mean that all gender distinctions are eradicated? Is that what Paul's communicating in Galatians 3.28? I don't think so. What he's recognizing is the relativizing of the gender category as being a primary or defining characteristic of a person. He's not saying it's not a defining characteristic of a person. He's saying there's a more defining characteristic of a person. Namely, not whether they are male or female, or as he goes on to say in that passage, slave or free or Jew or Gentile, but that those social, cultural, physical characteristics are less important than what it is to be in Christ. So the in Christ reality becomes the defining identity for us. Not whether we are a male Christian or a female Christian, but that we are a Christian. And there has been efforts in various quarters of the professing church to use that verse to eradicate all gender distinctions and say, see, in Christ it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Well, that's true at one level, but it's also not true at another level. Eradication is not the right word to use. It is subordination to the greater reality of being in Christ. But the, Paul's point there is that Christ's coming and his work does affect our understanding and thinking about gender in some really important ways. So I want to explore that in our sermon this morning. It's going to be topical. We're going to jump around to lots of different texts. As you know, my typical pattern is just to take a passage and open up that passage. But for this series, we've been bouncing around a little bit more by necessity because it is a topical series on gender. But we're still going to follow the basic biblical storyline. I want to discuss three elements of how the coming of Christ affects our understanding of gender. So first of all, 
the paradigm for gendered relationships. And by gendered relationships, I'm talking about specifically gendered relationships in the home between the husband and wife and gendered relationships in the church among pastors and members. Okay? So those are the two kind of spheres we're going to operate in this morning because I think that's what the New Testament talks about in the most detail. But I want to begin by reminding ourselves of what we've already seen in Genesis 1 and 2. Before sin enters the world, Genesis 1 and 2 presents man and woman, male and female, as equal in their essence as divine image bearers, but distinct in their social responsibilities. Adam is called to cultivate and care for the garden, and Eve is called to help him in that task of cultivating and caring. And although Eve is tempted as the helper, Adam is held responsible as the caretaker. Additionally, it's clear from Genesis that Adam possesses a form of authority in his relationship with Eve, not only because he's held responsible for the sin that both of them committed, but also because he's given the responsibility of naming Eve. We read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, that he called her woman because she was taken out of man. And then he specifically names her Eve as the mother of all the living in chapter 3, verse 20 of Genesis. Now that is a God-given expression of authority. How does God express his authority in creation? Naming things. Genesis chapter 1, God exercises his own rule by naming creation. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be the sky, or the heavens, and there were the heavens, and let there be the dry land, the earth. And then he entrusts, delegates, after creating Adam, this authority to name the animals. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, the Parade, the cavalcade of animals is presented before Adam, and whatever Adam names them is what they're called. So Adam was called to name the animals as an expression, as a vice regent, we could say, as a, as, a, as a prince over God's creation. And likewise, when Adam called Eve woman in Genesis 2.23 and called her Eve in chapter 3, verse 20, the naming of Eve was an exercise in delegated authority from God. Now, why is this important? It's because it provides the paradigm for gendered relationships in the Bible. Creation is the operating paradigm for what is good and right according to Jesus and the Apostle Paul in terms of gendered relationships in the home and in the church. In Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked about divorce, he points back to the creation paradigm in Genesis 1 and 2 as the normal operative way in which God's ordinance of marriage is to be carried out. Paul grounds his instructions later in 1 Corinthians 11, as we've already looked at, about the relationships of men and women in the church with an appeal, like Jesus, to the paradigm of creation. In 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, regarding head coverings that we considered several weeks ago in the Corinthian church, Paul writes, for a man ought not to cover his head, the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, as we talked about last week, that doesn't mean that woman is not the glory of God. She is the glory of God. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 tells us so. 
But his point is, as this cascade of glory came into creation, first from God, it proceeded to the man first, who then passed on his glory to the woman. So it was the cascading of the glory of God down to, through creation. His point is, this is the creation paradigm. This is the creation pattern. Paul continues to say, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Again, appealing to Genesis chapter 2. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Identifying the helper category that Eve, Eve was created to fulfill. Paul does the same thing in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he grounds his view of gender roles and church leadership in the order of Adam and Eve's creation. Some of the most disputed, uh, one of the most disputed texts in the New Testament is this one, but I'll, I'll, I'll briefly comment on it after we read it. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first. Notice his argument here. Whatever he means by the first verse, which we'll talk about in a second, he's rooting it, grounding it, not in a culture, but in creation. For Adam was formed first in Eve, and Eve was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So he's rooting it in the creation order at, uh, by God at creation. Let me just say a, a few brief things about a few of these words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. What does he mean by quiet? A woman is to be quiet in the church. Well, it's contrasted not with conversational talking. It's contrasted with authoritative teaching. So... Paul's not saying women can't speak in church. Women are told they are to pray in church. They are to sing in church. They are to, they are to fellowship in church. They are to encourage women and brothers and sisters in Christ in church. They're to talk a lot. That's not the point. The point is remaining quiet when it comes to the position of authoritative exercise of authority and teaching, specifically over men. Second Timothy, uh, or, or, uh, 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, which is a, an earlier passage in in first timothy paul defines what he means by quiet when he says and we talked about this in our sunday school class this morning when we are to pray for rulers and all those who are in authority that we may live a peaceful and quiet life that's the same word that he uses to describe the woman's role in the congregation it doesn't mean silent we're not to live a peaceful and silent life walking around never talking the point is serene and content okay so it doesn't mean silence. It means serenity, contentment, and affirms the honor the man is called to exercise, the qualified man, the elder, is called to exercise in the church. Secondly, what does it mean to teach? I do not permit a woman to teach. Well, Paul obviously does not restrict all forms of teaching with women. Women should be trained to teach. Titus chapter 2, verse 3, women are to teach younger women. It's a command. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Lois and Eunice, who stepped in for Timothy's derelict father, who was probably an unbeliever, according to the book of Acts, Lois, his mother, Eunice's grandmother, stepped in and taught Timothy the Scriptures. Praise the Lord for faithful mothers and grandmothers who teach children the Scriptures. I wouldn't be a Christian without that. Acts 18, verse 26, Priscilla and Aquila, the missionary team, came and sat down with Apollos and corrected him about the scriptures. And I'm sure that Priscilla had a hand in that, helping him understand the way of God more correctly. So 
Paul is not forbidding all forms of teaching here. He's forbidding teaching by women when it's an exercise in spiritual and delegated congregational authority over men. That's what he's, because that would violate the creation order. He's not saying that women can't teach women. He's not saying that he can't, women can't teach men in certain contexts. He's not saying, he's, he's saying that when it comes in the congregational gathering of the church where men and women are present, it is not appropriate for a woman to teach the scriptures in that context. And then finally, what does he mean by authority? Stop quiet, teach, authority. Well, this is where I think this, is, this opens up what Paul means by this verse. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, he says, To the elders who rule well, they are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So he says elders have two functions. They rule or exercise oversight over the congregation, and they preach and teach. So what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, is not that women have to be quiet in every circumstance. He's not saying that women can't teach in all circumstances. He's saying that he does not permit a woman to fill the office of elder in the local church. That's all the verse is communicating. When, because elders exercise authority through the preaching and teaching that they've been called to, to, to do by the congregation and by God. So that doesn't answer all the questions about that verse, but I hope it answers some of them. But again, when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, rather she's to be remain quiet, I hope it helps you understand what he doesn't mean by that and what he intends to communicate. But notice, he, he roots it in the fact that Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And then he adds this statement, which can be easily misunderstood. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, is he throwing Eve under the bus there? Is he saying, see, women are more deceivable. Women are more gullible. Sadly, this verse has been taken and taught that way. And it's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that women can't learn good theology. If so, what was Priscilla doing? when she was correcting Apollos? Or what was Phoebe doing when she was sent out by the Apostle Paul as a co-worker? So, again, his point is, this is what happened in creation. He's sharing the creational pattern, not pronouncing a moral judgment on it. In fact, if the moral judgment falls anywhere, it falls with the man. Because it was his job to protect the garden. And he failed to do it. So if anything... Eve's sin was the lesser than Adam's sin. So he's not, she's not, he's, Paul is not saying that the woman is easily, more easily deceived than the man. She's saying that the, he's saying the woman was deceived first. Then Adam took the fruit and ate. And she was a, the first transgressor in that she took first, was deceived first, took of the fruit and ate. She was the first transgressor. But again, it does not communicating anything about the gullibility or deceivability of women in general. The point is that for Paul and for Jesus, what is creational is normative. What is creational is perpetual. The creation account shapes how we approach issues related to gender. These ideas are not rooted in culture. They're rooted in creation. What God did in the early chapters of Genesis is a design, is to design a beautiful framework of royal authority throughout the cosmos. And the cascade of glory begins with God himself, who then passes it on to Adam, who then passes it on to Eve. 
And this order is not inconsequential or unimportant for Jesus or for the apostles. It is part of God's very good design in creation. And it is something that Satan intended to spoil by reversing God's very good order. Why did Satan take the form of a serpent, an animal, and go to the woman, and then to man, and then to God? Because he's trying to usurp and undo God's creation in reverse. To disrupt and destroy the entire authority structure God created. From the lowest of all the animals, the serpent, to convince the woman, to convince the man, to declare war against God. Instead of going God, man, woman, animals, he went animals, woman, man, God. In an attempt to overthrow God's creation. So that's the paradigm for gendered relationships. It's not cultural. While there are aspects of culture that are, or, or gender that are cultural, we need to say that, and we need, the Bible acknowledges that, and it supports that. And, but the fundamental categories of gendered relationships of male and female in the home and in the church are rooted in creation, not culture. That's what I'm trying to say. Not that all forms of, of, of gender have no cultural expression, but that the categories and the roles by which God orders the home and orders the church are determined by creation, not culture. Secondly, the pattern in gendered relationships. So how are we called to live out this creation pattern? And this is where Jesus comes in and explodes our sinful categories and replaces it with the pattern that he himself laid down. So while creation is the paradigm, creation, or Jesus, is the pattern. Because Jesus is the true image of God. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is the one who shows us what humanity under authority looks like and how humanity in authority acts like. Jesus shows us what humanity under authority looks like and what humanity in authority acts like. We see this first in Genesis 24, chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. While this text describes the first human marriage between Adam and Eve, it is to merely serve as a human expression of the divine reality. This is the way Paul expresses it in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. When he quotes Genesis 2.24, he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Adam and Eve. Is that what he says? No. He says, I'm, re I'm referring to Christ and the church. Christ and the church is the real thing. Adam and Eve is the type. Genesis 2.24 and 25 is about gendered relationships, but gender was always about Jesus, at least in terms of the way it functions. Christ's relationship to his people is the archetype for human marriage. Then to live a gendered life in biblical perspective means living out the patterns of creation in light of and in tension with the higher reality revealed in Christ. So what does this mean? Simply put, the one who is under authority does so with respect and love and meekness, just as Christ did under his Father's authority his entire life. I only do what the will of my Father is for me to do. Christ lived under authority. 
And, and we're all, like I've said, we're all under authority and we're, most of us are in authority in certain levels. So Christ affects both of those. It's not just about husband and wife, pastors and members, although that's going to be the primary focus. It's about employees and employers. That has impact. Parents and children. All those things impact. So the point is, Jesus' pattern for our gendered relationships means that those who are under authority do so with meekness, sweetness, gentleness, deference, joy. And those who are in authority lovingly serve those under their authority. What did Jesus do as one who was in authority? He said in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28, Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They love to have power. They love to tell people what to do. They love to just push their weight around. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man. That's a title of royal dignity. That's... That's 1 Samuel 7. That's the kingship of David. Even though the Son of Man man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what does this pattern in gender relationships look like for men? Well, it means accepting the particular responsibilities given to us through our first father, Adam. It means living out those responsibilities in a Christ-like way primarily through taking initiative in servant-hearted love, sacrificial love for those we are called to care for. It means looking out for the good of others, especially vulnerable children and women. It means putting Christ's own purposes ahead of our desires. It means gratefully acknowledging women as necessary companions and seeking to honor them and promote their labors. And it means recognizing women as equals before Christ, neither belittling their gifts nor obscuring their distinct responsibilities. What would it mean for women to exercise the pattern of Jesus in their gendered relationships? Well, it means honoring the particular responsibilities that God has given to men in their lives. It means seeking to join with men in serving Christ and encouraging men to discharge their calling faithfully exemplifying the humility and service that's enjoined on every believer, drawing on the example of Christ himself who in submission entrusted himself to one who judges justly. So with that paradigm of creation established or reestablished and that pattern of Christ's servanthood laid on top of it, how does that play out practically in the home and in the church? And that's where we're going to spend the most of our time this morning. So we've got the creational paradigm, I trust, we got the pattern of Christ's self-sacrificial love and servanthood laid on top of it. What does that look like for those in authority and under authority in the home and the church? We're going to talk about both of those and throw in various texts along the way. So we come to our final and largest point, the practice of gendered relationships in the home and in the church. How does the paradigm of creation and the pattern of Christ shape our gendered relationships in the church and in the home? First of all, what does it mean for those in authority in the home, namely the husbands? Ephesians 5, 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy 
and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. See how we talked about before the garden, caretaker, cultivator, bringing life. But nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul says it that way in Ephesians. Peter picks up on it in his first letter, 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So what does it mean for husbands in authority in the home to pattern their leadership after Christ, which is a paradigm of creation? Men, if you're a husband... It means we do not, you do not have authority over women in general. Men do not have authority over women in general. There are certain spheres that God has designed that authority to be exercised. So men who walk around thinking they can boss women around, even women who they, they shouldn't boss their wives around, let alone other women, it, it's an unbiblical, demonic use of authority. Husbands have an authority that is marked by sacrificial love for their wives. That is the card you get to play, husbands. That means there is no place in your marriage for your rights to be asserted. There is no place in your marriage for your cause to be defended. There is no right in your Marriage for abuse to take place, whether verbally or physically. There's no place for physical, verbal coercion, emotional manipulation. Brothers, there may be a tone of voice that you are accustomed to using at work that you should never use with your wife. It means laying down your rights, spending your energy, time, creativity, for the flourishing of your wife and children. That is what has been laid upon your shoulders. Leadership then, authority then under Christ, is not a right to claim, it's a burden to bear. It's not a right you get to exercise. Submit! If you ever have to say that, you are not living in Christ the way Christ would have you to live. Did Christ ever say that to anybody? I didn't hear it. I didn't read it in the Gospels. That's not, you don't get to command your wife to submit. God does. You get to lay your life down according to Christ's pattern. So married brothers, there is no submission card that you get to play in your marriage. The Bible never commands you to tell your wife to submit. The only command you've been given, the only card you've been given to play is the sacrificial love of Christ card. And you should be playing that card all the time. Single men, if you're not learning these habits now, it will not magically appear on the day you get married. So start working now on sacrificially serving other people. This is why I'm thrilled to see our young men who like to stretch their serving muscles, work on those serving muscles now, putting other people before themselves. Because if you ever get married and God ever gives you children, you will be using those muscles all day every day. 
So what does it mean for those? That's what it means for those in authority in the home, sacrificial love. What does it mean for those under authority in the home, namely the wives and the children? Well, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 instructs us regarding wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 5 and 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some husbands do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So it means wives and children who submissively trust in Christ. That's the point. All the reference in Ephesians 5 to wives is do this as to the Lord. You are submitting as an expression of submission to Jesus. Which means that any time that submission would violate your allegiance to Jesus, you don't submit to that husband. But where there is legitimate, a legitimate submission given, then we do do it. Not in cases where there's abuse or abandonment or things like that, but where, or where the husband is calling upon the wife to sin in some way. But here we have Peter saying, even if the marriage is difficult, not abusive, but difficult, stick at it. He assumes that, as we do in our own congregation, women who are not married to Christian husbands, that, 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 that creates its own challenge and difficulty, but they can still be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So it means wives and children who submissively trust in Christ as they yield to sacrificial loving authority of their husband and father and mother in the case of the children. And it means in marriage that unless that trust is broken by adultery or abandonment, which can include physical abuse, wives, put your trust in God and help your husband be better than he would be without you. Which we are amazingly better, aren't we brothers? Because of godly and faithful wives. So, what does it mean? And everybody needs to join Byron in that, all right. That's a good one right there. Every husband needs to say, amen. We are grateful for our loving and godly wives who help us. So what does it mean for those in authority in the church? We're switching from the home to the church. And we're going to see this pattern, again, this creational paradigm play out along with the pattern of Christ-likeness. 1 Peter chapter 5, 1-3. What does it mean for those in authority in the church? Namely, elders. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So in other words, the way in which elders exercise authority in the congregation is patterned after Christ. Self-sacrificial, loving leadership putting the needs of the body ahead of their own desires. 1 Timothy 3, 1-5, to 
talking about the qualifications for elders. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or an elder, he, a pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Boy, that not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. I'm afraid there's a whole lot of pastors disqualified in our day for stuff like that. Bullies shoving their weight around, fighting all the time about everything. Notice Paul says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So among the elders, there is no domineering, no manipulating, no strong-arming, and no coercing the church. The only authority your pastors have is ministerial authority. That's it. We exercise authority on someone else's behalf, and that king holds us accountable for the way we exercise it. The elders have no authority of their own. We don't. It's given by God, stewarded through the recognition of the congregation. That's it. The only authority we have is declarative. Teaching. That's it. There is one king, and one king alone in the church, and his word alone binds your conscience. And if your elders can't persuade you from the scriptures that that's the case, we have no other authority. That's it. All I can do is say, thus say the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Beyond that, I got nothing. And where God hasn't spoken, we better keep our mouths shut, pastors. This is why elders are called to teach and be able to teach, because teaching's all we got. <laughs> all we can do is bring the word of God in prayer to you all and try to love you and serve your soul in that way. It's not because we like standing up in front of people and talking. It's because the king mediates his word and the authority of it through the leadership of the church, and that authority is expressed as pastors declare the king's word to the king's people. And what about relationships between men and women in general in the church, not pastors and members? Again, men have no authority over women in the church as members. Instead, we're together as members of the same family who relate to one another as siblings. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 tells us how brothers and sisters are to relate in the congregation. Paul tells Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So even elders are called upon to treat the congregation like family members fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers. We also see the way Jesus treated those under his care. He treated the apostles with dignity. He also treated the women in his sphere with deep respect and involved them in his mission. He taught and trained them as his disciples. He didn't rebuke Mary for wanting to sit at the Lord's feet and learn. If he would, he said, hey, women aren't supposed to learn theology. Get up, Mary. Go help Martha. They're supposed to be in the kitchen. No. Jesus said, it's better that they're at my feet than in the kitchen. Overturning so much of these ideas 
There was no devaluing of women in Jesus' ministry, no objectification, no abuse, no marginalization of women in the life and ministry of Jesus. Instead, he noticed them, he dignified them, he enjoyed their company, he depended on them, he was ministered to by them, he appropriately and non-sexually touched and received non-sexual touch from them, and even respectfully rebuked, corrected, and forgave them. And brothers, we need to do the same. And sisters, you need to relate to your brothers like that. Deep respect, companionship, dignity, enjoying each other's company, depending on each other, working alongside of one another in the context of the church. Titus 2, 1 to 5, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So as we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, or 12 and 13, only qualified men are able to serve as pastors, not men. Men don't get to serve as pastors. Qualified men get to serve as pastors. Just as the patriarchal leaders of Israel were all men, the writing prophets were all men, and the 12 apostles were all men, the New Testament church is patterned after the leaders of Israel, patterned after the written prophets, patterned after the 12 apostles as being led by qualified, God-appointed men. But while churches ought not to allow a woman to exposit or exhort from Scripture in the weekly assembly of men and women, a wealth of other arenas are available for sisters to exercise their gifts and for the congregation to see their faces and hear their voices in the church, in the life of the church, and in the worship of the church. Leading singing, participating on the worship team as did Miriam and Deborah, praying in the gatherings of the church as we see in 1 Corinthians 11, reading Scripture and asking them for insights from Scripture, as Priscilla and her husband Aquila instructed Apollos. Lead and assist the elders and deacons in planning and executing ministry in the church, just as Paul calls Phoebe and Yodiah and Syntyche co-laborers who helped him alongside of him in ministry. Brothers we need, and sisters, we need a robust and healthy vision of gendered relationships in the church. It does not boil down to just authority and submission. There are huge avenues of service for all men and all women to serve in as appropriately called and gift by God. And we will hinder the health and effectiveness of our congregation if in the name of the slippery slope toward the pastorate, we limit women's gifts. We must let the Bible determine what those things are and then free and release and honor women in those callings. And Scripture limits it pretty small to qualified men for the eldership and in the context of the church a robust family life where men and women help each other spiritually to grow to serve alongside of each other and to promote each other's ministry in the congregation so what does it mean for those under authority then in the church members if that's what pastors are called to be to teach with a non-domineering humble posture that seeks to persuade from scripture so what does it mean for those in authority in the church well two verses hebrews 13 17 obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you or first thessalonians 5 12 and 13 we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. 
So it means obedience according to the scriptures that the pastors teach as, a, as, a, as an expression of obedience to Christ. It means a willingness to submit to their oversight of your soul. It means a willingness to, to do, let them do this with joy so it's not a burden for them. It, which means inviting it, welcoming it, asking for it. It means respecting those who labor among us and who are over us in the Lord, esteeming them highly in love because of their work. And you church have historically done a very, very good job of that. So to be clear, trusting submission to authority never means following the pastors into sin, just as it doesn't mean follow, wives following their husbands into sin, or children for that matter. It also doesn't mean you can never ask questions or raise objections. It, doesn't mean, it does mean having a posture to follow the leadership of the authority that God has placed in the church. A posture. In the church, that means while the final authority rests with the congregation in matters of voting members in and out, approving our annual budget, recognizing and installing new leaders as elders or deacons, as motions come from the pastors, the general disposition is to look upon that with trust and not suspicion. That is not being a rubber stamp and that is not being a yes man or a yes woman. That is what healthy relationships of trusting authority look like. The reality is, is if someone finds that they can't trust their elders and repeatedly are suspicious of their elders, then they should get new elders that they can trust, that are worthy of that for the sake of their own soul. So when submission is understood as trust and not subservience, rooted not in the trustworthiness of the human authority, but in the trustworthiness of God who established that authority, do you know what happens over the battle between the sexes and genders? Talk about that a lot, the battle of the sexes. Who's going to rule? Who's going to reign? Who's going to win? What happens in the battle of the sexes when the paradigm of creation, the pattern of Christ-likeness, and the practice of the New Testament fall into place? Those in submission put down their weapons. And what happens to those in authority? They put down their weapons. Because both are committed to behaving like Christ. In doing things this way, God is restoring what was lost in Eden. And we can only do this in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We must be in submission with Christ to live in unity with each other. The reason why we have such a hard time so often having other people in authority over us is because we're in authority over us and only us. And until we give up that authority, we're not going to welcome any God-ordained authorities into our life. But as soon as we surrender all of our life and lordship to the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, you're the boss, you're the master, you're my savior, you call the shots, then where appropriate and we're biblically defined, we yield ourselves to those authorities as well. And where we're called to be in authority, we exercise it under authority under the authority of King Jesus. Where we're in submission, we exercise submission under the authority of King Jesus. It's all about Christ. It's not about who gets to call the shots. It's about what would Jesus have us to do in different situations. And although woman is a creature who comes from man, man also comes from woman, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. So we share together in life and in mission. 
And just as woman is a creature that comes from man and for man, who shares his life and his mission, so the church is a creature that comes from Jesus and is for Jesus and shares his life and mission. Here's where John Calvin said about it. He said, The wife was formed of the flesh and bones of her husband. Such is the union between us and Christ, who in some form makes us partakers of his substance. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, because by the power of his spirit, he makes us a part of his body, so that from him we derive our life. In the same way, Augustine sees the whole creation of Eve as an allegory. He says, Adam sleeps that Eve may be formed. Christ dies that the church may be formed. When Adam sleeps, Eve is formed from his side. When Christ is dead, the spear pierces his side. That the mysteries may flow forth whereby the church is formed. All was mysteriously prefigured. See, brothers and sisters, gender is important. It's a part of creation's witness to Christ. Part of the grammar through which God speaks to us about his son. And if we change that grammar if we lose the distinctiveness of the paradigm of creation and the pattern of Christ, of what it means to be a man and a woman, we should expect it to become harder for us to receive that message. God has made us men and women, and many in our current cultural moment know with, uh, with struggle with knowing exactly what that means. But the Bible tells us more than we often realize. It tells us about the origins, the structure, and the ultimate meaning of our gender. It tells us where it came from, where it's going. And it helps us discover ourselves in God's word and in the story of his son. And if you aren't part of that story yet, I invite you this morning. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Jesus will not rob your humanity from you. He will fulfill your humanity in you. You can only be truly human in union with Jesus Christ, the true human. People think that we can if we submit our lives to the lordship of christ he's going to take away he's not going to let us be fully human all that he takes away is not part of your humanity all that he takes away is sin distorting your humanity he wants to make you fully human and fully alive and so to yield to the lordship of christ is to sign up for a human destiny i'm becoming a human I'm becoming man and woman for the very first time. For the rest of my life, as Christ sanctifies me, I'm becoming more, of the image, more in the image of God as man and as woman. Brothers and sisters, let's lean into that. Let's lean into that. Gender is important, but it isn't ultimate. We find our truest identities in Christ, not in our chromosomes. The Bible tells us that there is a much greater and much more permanent reality behind gender, and life at its deepest level is about Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the paradigm that you give us in creation. We're sorry for the ways in which our sin has spoiled your good plan. But we thank you that in Christ, through the seed of the woman, you are bringing about the restoration of your good design in the home, in the church, and in the lives of men and women individually, as we live under your lordship, reflect your creation pattern in submission and servanthood to Jesus Christ. So Lord, form Christ more deeply into us. Help us to relate to all of our relationships as Christ would, whether as men or women, whether as husbands or wives, whether as pastors or church members, 
whether as employees or employers, Lord, help us to relate as Christ would have us so that you might be glorified and that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray.